Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn how to see beyond Alzheimer's, guidance for patients and caregivers. My first guest is Dr. Andrew Butson. Dr. Butson majored in chemistry and philosophy at Haverford College before receiving his medical degree from Harvard Medical School. Dr. Butson is a professor of neurology at Boston University, lecturer in neurology at Harvard Medical School, and Chief of Cognitive and Behavioral Neurology at the Veterans Affairs Boston Healthcare System. His career combines education, research, and clinical care to help those with memory disorders. We're talking about his newest book, Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia, A Guide for Families. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining us on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, this is a subject that many of us who have aging parents and many of us who are aging ourselves have concern about in terms of dementia, memory loss, and Alzheimer's. And I think any of us who have parents in any of those categories will be anxious to hear what you have to share. Let's talk about understanding dementia a bit first and the different kinds of dementia. Absolutely. So the first thing I always like to explain is that dementia is actually sort of the general umbrella term that simply means that thinking and memory has deteriorated to the point that it interferes with day-to-day -day function. And so Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia, but there's other types as well. There's dementia that can come on with Parkinson's disease, which is very similar to dementia with Lewy bodies. There can be vascular dementia, which is dementia due to strokes. There can be uh, frontotemporal dementia that tends to affect either behavior or language first. And believe it or not, there's others as well. Wow. Scary, scary, scary is what I have to say. But, you know, that's just me. Let's talk about when we have a loved one that has received one of these diagnoses and the challenges that exist for the patient and the loved one and the family members. Yeah. It, you know, there are different challenges that occur at different places uh, along the way. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, we wrote uh, sort of a fairly comprehensive book is so that families can sort of turn to different parts of it when they're at different stages. The first thing is often just the acceptance, the sort of realization that uh, something is wrong and it's different than uh, normal aging because, of course, there can be some changes in memory that occur 
with normal aging, but they shouldn't be interfering with day-to-day function. And when that happens, we really know that something is wrong. It can be difficult for that acceptance just because emotionally it can be sort of hard for both the individual and their loved one to sort of, uh, uh, sort of admit to the fact that, wow, something's really wrong. Can I um, just interject here for a moment and talk about the difference between what's considered, you know, normal kinds of forgetfulness as we age, like, you know, simple word retrieval versus a more serious case where one is, you know, putting their car keys in the refrigerator kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the types of uh, changes in memory that are uh, normal with aging is that information may need to be repeated a couple of times in order for the individual to uh, sort of get that information, hold on to it. It also may take a little bit longer to retrieve the information one is looking for. And the last thing is sometimes people need like a hint or a cue in order to be able to latch on to that information. Uh, But importantly, in normal aging, Uh, As long as the information has sort of gotten into the memory stores, it should be able to be retrieved, even if it takes a little bit of time or a hint or a cue. And I want to contrast that with the changes you see in Alzheimer's. In Alzheimer's, uh, what happens is there becomes sort of like a hole in the memory file cabinet. And because of that, even when information is repeated, even if you wait a little bit of time or you give a hint or a cue, the information cannot be retrieved. And that's really what's not normal. Wow. And and what about the diagnosis process? How simple is that to understand which of these dementias someone might have? Yeah. So I always recommend that people start by going to their primary care doctor if they're concerned about themselves or a loved one. And the primary care doctor should take a history of the memory problems that are occurring. They should do at least a brief uh, five, 10 minute uh, pencil and paper uh, testing. And there should be some blood work taken to look for, say, thyroid disorders or infections like Lyme disease, vitamin deficiencies, for example, in vitamin D and vitamin B12. And then finally, there should be some type of a brain scan, either an MRI scan or a CAT scan to look for big strokes or tumors or surprises that we might see in the brain. And as long as the primary care doctor uh, can do all those things, then that's the place to start. Now, sometimes primary care doctors don't feel comfortable doing all those things, which is fine. And then the individual can be referred to a specialist, which usually would be a neurologist, psychiatrist, geriatrician, or neuropsychologist. And hopefully uh, one of those individuals who specializes in late life disorders of memory. Mm. Ah, Food for thought in that department. So one goes through this process, receives a diagnosis, the loved one may not have any significant symptoms other than the first memory issue that brought them for the diagnosis. And then the family and the caregivers are dealing with 
adapting? Yeah, and early on, it would be, uh, we talk about being a, sort of a care partner early on, that the family would want a partner with the individual who's having some mild memory problems. You know, maybe just sort of check in and make sure, do they have a good system for uh, taking their medications and making sure they have medication refills? Are they using a pill box? Are they filling it correctly? Maybe someone just needs to uh, stop in uh, once or twice a week and make sure the pills are being taken correctly. Same thing with paying the bills, making sure everything's going well. But then as the person begins to become more impaired, the, uh, the family members will sort of transition from being a care partner to more of a caregiver and will be sort of doing more of the day-to-day administering uh, medications, will often take over doing the bills, and that's when things are sort of progressing, uh, uh, going from the sort of mild cognitive impairment, very early dementia stages, into some of the, the later stages. In your practice, you mentioned before we got started that because we are living longer as a society, that we're seeing more and more of these dementias and Alzheimer's. But I wanted to ask you specifically in in your practice, have you seen an escalation in these diagnoses in the past few years during COVID? Um, Are there any trends that you're witnessing? Absolutely. Our uh, clinics, uh, I I, uh, practice a few different places, mainly in the VA, Uh, have been exploding. And we've actually had to hire more staff to see all of the the patients because we are aging as a society. And this is sort of a good thing that people are are living longer. And it, it really is simply because of that, that individuals are living longer as their heart disease is treated and their cancers are, are treated uh, successfully. And uh, so then it becomes their memories. That's really the rate limiting step in terms of people enjoying uh, their later years. And, uh, you know, I I feel very strongly that uh, we need to do everything that we can to help people because I hate to see it when someone has, you know, worked hard, you know, their whole life and now they're ready to spend retirement with their spouse and do enjoyable activities, and one of them ends up with Alzheimer's disease. So it's really important we all do everything we can, including live a healthy lifestyle, to try and hopefully prevent the onset of diseases of memory. Excuse me, and just in d- diseases in general. I mean, the idea that we actually learn to care for our bodies and our minds appropriately to stave disease. I mean, I think that this is, it's a very different model, right? Not many people are looking at the, 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 their health from this perspective, right? They're thinking they're, they've got a symptom. They're going to go to the doctor. They're going to get a prescription for whatever. And when in fact it is that early lifestyle intervention that helps prevent or recover our health if we have had challenges. Absolutely. And I think that it's often the doctors who have been 
a little bit slow on the uptake, but we're finally catching on that we really need to move from sort of a disease model of healthcare to a health model of healthcare, yeah. that we all need to work to stay healthy uh, from uh, the beginning because we now understand that um, it's much better for your body to uh, prevent or treat things like high blood pressure and high cholesterol and diabetes by um, eating a healthy diet, by exercising regularly, by maintaining a healthy uh, body weight. And you just don't get the same benefits from taking pills to treat all these different things. Now, don't get me wrong, it's much better to take the pills to treat these problems than to do nothing and yeah. have them be out of control. But if one can uh, achieve the same lowered blood pressure and cholesterol and glucose by lifestyle changes, that is uh, a, a far better outcome and will give one a lower risk of developing heart disease, strokes, and Alzheimer's in the future. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I want to circle back to COVID and how it affects the brain, because you shared with me some interesting information that I didn't know about. And I think it's important that our listeners are aware. To learn more about the work of Dr. Andrew Butson, please visit andrewbutsonmd.com, on Twitter at A. Butson, and on Facebook, Andrew Butson, MD. The book we're speaking about today is Six Steps to Manage Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia, A Guide for Families. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Hang on just a minute here. Let's talk about the joys of making home a happy place filled with personal expression and a canvas for memory making. My home is the hub of my family. Home is my haven, castle, sanctuary, recording studio, office, boardroom, and creativity laboratory. Get your home autumn ready for cooler temps and cozy gatherings now. Joybird's fall sale is here. Joybird offers crisp, modern, customizable furnishings and accessories for every space. Joybird is furniture that fits your style in a wide variety of vibrant and durable designs. It's like visiting a virtual candy store for your home with more than 18,000 customized options to help you express your one-of-a-kind style. Recently, I bought an await delivery of Joybird Soto Chair for the perfect spot next to the fireplace in my bedroom. I can't wait to snuggle up with a good book and a crackling fire. Don't know where to start? Joybird's design specialists are standing by to help you make your vision a reality for free. Ordering online has never been easier or more fun. From design to customer care, Joybird has you covered. Joybird Furniture stands by its quality and craftsmanship. If it's not everything you'd hope for, send it back within 90 days. Each piece is made with incredible care using responsibly sourced materials that are free of harmful chemicals. Joybird is also committed to a more sustainable future by partnering with groups like One Tree Planted to help conserve and restore Earth's precious natural resources. Simply put, Joybird Furniture is made with top-notch stain and scratch-resistant fabrics and comes with a limited lifetime warranty. Joybird Furniture can handle anything your family throws at it, literally. Create a space that brings you joy with Joybird. Visit joybird.com slash happiness and get 30% off your purchase. That's 30% off at joybird.com slash 
happiness. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. We're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Andrew Butson about seeing beyond Alzheimer's guidance for patients and caregivers. So, Andrew, we had touched upon COVID and the long-term effects just a tiny little bit in the last segment. And you and I had had a conversation about that. And I would love to educate our listeners a little bit more about this. Yeah, there's a couple different ways that uh, COVID affects individuals with memory problems and potentially the risk of developing uh, memory problems in the future. So the first that I'll mention briefly is the social isolation that the pandemic has created has really, it's just been awful. I mean, I think we all sort of know that at some level, but for our uh, older adults in our society with or without memory problems, it's, it's been particularly hard. Uh, social isolation is an independent risk factor for the development of Alzheimer's disease. So obviously this alone is one reason that we do expect to see greater numbers of Alzheimer's disease in the future. And for the individuals who uh, already have memory problems, whether due to Alzheimer's or another cause of dementia, it really has often just been horrible, uh, particularly in the beginning before the vaccines, they're asked to stay in their room. Many of them are confused and they really do much better being in a group and doing group activities, it's been very, uh, very hard. But one of the interesting scientific uh, aspects that people are doing uh, research on right now is whether if you had COVID, would this possibly make you more at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease in the future? And I want to state clearly that we do not know the answer to that question. We really are going to have to sort of look over time and see what happens. But there are uh, researchers who are looking at the fact that COVID is a virus that does affect the brain. It affects the nervous system. Uh, some people can have a direct effect on the brain, but many people, even if it didn't hit their brain directly, it hits it indirectly. So the loss of smell that is so common with COVID is actually from the olfactory nerve uh, being infected uh, with COVID. And one of the theories of Alzheimer's disease that is not proven, but I think is correct, is that one of the triggers of Alzheimer's disease is that the amyloid protein that develops in Alzheimer's is actually there for a reason. It's there to help our brain fight off infections. Mm. And so the COVID virus if it is starting to get into the brain, whether it's through those olfactory nerves or other places, it can uh, 
end up triggering this uh, uh, depositing of the amyloid protein, forming plaques, and starting the cascade that leads to Alzheimer's. So many researchers are worried that uh, people who have had COVID may be at least at a little bit of increased risk for developing Alzheimer's in the future. And in the long hauler group, the continued brain fog is one of the symptoms that they are reporting. Absolutely. And I, I do want to say that I think this is sort of a separate problem from the, the future risk. So any of you who are out there and are feeling this brain fog, uh, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get uh, Alzheimer's disease. And we've learned, uh, I think, uh, to some extent, we've learned about you know, why people may have brain fog. Some people, unfortunately, uh, can have uh, a little bit of damage to the brain directly, uh, and that can be from the virus. Other people can have had trouble with their lungs, and if there wasn't enough oxygen going to the brain, and specifically to the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain where new memories are formed, that can also cause uh, some of this brain fog. And a group in China actually looked at uh, neuropsychological tests of people who had recovered from uh, COVID and seemingly recovered completely. And what they found was there was trouble with what's known as working memory, which is the ability to keep information in your mind and manipulate it. And the other things that my patients have told me is that not only do they have trouble doing that, those types of activities, but just everything is more effortful and it takes more work. The good news is many of my patients have gotten better over time. And the things that I have recommended to them do seem to have made a difference, which is to increase one's exercise tolerance as as you can, you know, to listen to your body. Uh, Don't push yourself more than is feeling comfortable, but try and increase your exercise. Even though the junk food calls, try and continue to (laughs) to eat a a healthy diet, right? I mean, you know, when we're not feeling well, right, we all want to reach for that comfort food. Yeah, I really encourage people to to even even if you're not feeling well, stick with the healthy diet. You'll feel better uh, in the end. And and I am pleased that I will honestly say most people who have come to see me with brain fog have made improvements over time. I can't say they're 100% to where they were before COVID, but most of them have felt much better, good enough to go back to their lives, resume their work full time, things like that. Which leads me to the basic interventions that we can make in terms of lifestyle. We spoke a little bit about that, which is getting good restorative sleep, exercising, eating a, a healthful diet with, with true nutrition in our food, not, not, you know, junk stuff. But I want to circle back to supplementation. And you, you had said that you feel that, that we should be able to get a lot of the vitamins we need from our food And yet it seems that we also might need a little help in certain departments. Yeah, absolutely. So 
the first thing, just to uh, emphasize what you said, there's uh, more and more studies that we really do need the full range of uh, vitamins and nutrition and flavonoids and omega-3s, but all of the research suggests that it all works much better when we get it from food. So I recommend a, you know, a wide variety of foods following the, the Mediterranean uh, menu uh, that is, is uh, uh, I think, well-established. Yeah. But there are a few vitamins that's very common to be deficient in our society, particularly in older individuals. And this includes vitamin D and vitamin B12. And I saw a patient in my clinic just yesterday whose vitamin B12 was below assay. It was so low, it couldn't even be measured. And their vitamin D level was very low uh, as well. And uh, so I actually ended up deferring the diagnosis because this person actually might have all of their memory problems from their B12 uh, deficiency. Wow. And so it really is important. Uh, that's one of those blood tests I talked about in the last segment that the primary care doctor can check. So it really is important to get these uh, things checked. And both uh, vitamin B12 and vitamin uh, D3 are available over the counter. I don't recommend mega doses because taking more doesn't help, but we need to make sure people have a, a good normal amount in their blood. What I find hopeful in what you're sharing is that we know a lot more about how lifestyle impacts dementias. We know that we can help prevent or slow down the trajectory if a diagnosis is given. And the other important element before we run out of time here is for the care partner who now moves into the caregiving position, the burnout rate and how to protect oneself so he or she does not become a statistic as well. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Lisa. Uh, thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, my co-author, uh, Dr. Maureen O'Connor, uh, she has this wonderful uh, phrase, which is, you can't pour from an empty cup. <laughs> And so as, as caregivers, we all have to work to fill up our cups so we can then uh, pour and give to our uh, loved ones. And studies have actually shown that uh, caregivers who take the time to take care of themselves end up providing better care and for longer to their loved ones. So it really is important. So I want all caregivers to take time to exercise, take time to get a good night's rest, to eat a healthy diet, to maintain social connections and see friends, to just take time for yourself, pursue hobbies, do other things. And, um, you know, if doing yoga or mindfulness or meditation, uh, if that's helpful to you to, to do that as well, it really is uh, important that uh, all of us caregivers out there uh, work to take care of ourselves. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrew E. Butson. The book we're speaking about today is Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia, A Guide for Families. To learn more about Andrew's work, please visit andrewbutsonmd.com. On Twitter, you can find him at A. Butson and on Facebook, Andrew Butson, MD. 
Thanks so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us and, and educating us. These are things that we need to know. We need to, to learn and not be scared to confront. Yes. Thank you so much. We'll jump off for that quick break and we'll be right back. That's a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we're back continuing the conversation with my next guest, Patty Davis. We're talking about seeing beyond Alzheimer's guidance for patients and caregivers. She is the author of many books, including The Long Goodbye. Her support group, Beyond Alzheimer's, is now licensed at Geisinger Medical Center in Pennsylvania and the Cleveland Clinic in Las Vegas. She lives in Santa Monica, California, and she's the author of Floating in the Deep End, How Caregivers Can See Beyond Alzheimer's. Patty, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure. This is a this is a hard subject matter any way you slice it, dealing with Alzheimer's and other dementias, and then also the extreme stress and toll it takes on caregivers. Yes. And that's why I wrote the book. And that's why I started my support group program in, in 2011. Um, I, I think We've gotten a lot better about talking about the disease, certainly since 1994 when my father was diagnosed and no one was talking about it. But I don't I don't think we've really gotten a lot better um, in caring for the caregivers and treating them really essentially as patients, because if you don't treat them as patients at the beginning, deserving of care, they will actually become patients. And we know that. Statistically, we know that caregivers of people with dementia are very likely to get ill and even die before the person that they are caring for because of stress-related illnesses, conditions, strokes, heart attacks, all of that. Wow. I I actually didn't think of it in those terms. I know from my own caregiving journey with a loved one that the 24-7 aspect day in and day out for, you know, for a period of years does take a physical and emotional toll, but I never thought of the reduction or compromise of personal health in that way. Right. I mean, we, well, that's what stress does. Yeah. And, you know, it's not that you're not going to have stress in a stressful situation, but it, it is that you have to learn the tools for, um, giving yourself a break from that and um, keeping it in check. Because the danger is that it becomes your norm. You know, people go, well, I'm not, I'm not stressed. I don't feel any different than I did before. Well, no, because before you've, you've, been, you've been under stress for, you yes. know, a year or more. Yeah. Right. So it's normal to you now and it erodes the body. And and we know that and doctors know that. And, um, you know, when I when I stopped, um, I ran my support group twice a week for six years. And um, in 2017, I just for a variety of reasons, most having to do with time, um, I, I thought I'd. I needed to stop doing that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take this to a next phase and, and uh, write up a pamphlet, a prospectus, you know, and um, 
and submit it to hospitals so they can license it. And two hospitals, as as you said, did. And I went and gave a lecture at each at each hospital. Um, you know, after that, and um, but a, a number of other hospitals said to me, "Oh, this is yeah, it's a great idea, really important, but this is not in our budget." Yeah, I heard we don't care about this because the budget for what the model that I submitted to them was for the group running once a week because I thought that would be more palatable for them. Um, so once a week for 90 minutes with two uh, facilitators, which is my model, one person like filling my role and then the other facilitator being from the medical field so that medical questions can get answered. Um, the cost for a hospital is a little over 30000 a year, which for a hospital is like pocket change. Pittance. <laughs> yeah, that's like a month's worth of aspirin or something, you know. Um, so I, like I said, I think, you know, it's still we're still very behind in, um, in, in caring for the caregivers. And so then my next phase was, well, I'm going to write a book that people can carry with them and dog ear and mark up and refer to whenever they need to. And all of the principles and insights that I brought into my support group program, I will put into this, into this book. It's also obviously part memoir because I wanted people to know how I came to those insights, how I came to those ideas in the 10 years that my father was ill. I think we forget how long Alzheimer's can last, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that mm-hmm. you know, I, I, what, one of your books was The Long Goodbye, correct? And yes. And in it, you you capture the the story of of your dad's illness. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your experience of that trajectory, you know, sort of being maybe in denial, the anger, then sort of the commitment and being all in. And then what happened to you, your metamorphosis over that time? Well, I was never actually in denial. I mean, my father was sort of kind of diagnosed in 1989. I, I write about this in Floating in the Deep End. When he fell off the horse, had an a, um, accident and hit his head, and he had uh, bleeding on the brain, so they obviously did a brain scan. <clears throat> and um, they saw a plaque on his brain. So my mother did not tell my father. Um, she didn't tell me or anyone else. She told Ron, my brother, and then he told me, but he told me, you're not supposed to tell anybody else because our father doesn't know. And my family's exhausting with secrets. It's, like, it's exhausting. <laughs> God. It's even exhausting just explaining that. Yeah. <laughs> just, I just thought, I need a nap. Um, and so, but they obviously didn't do a full workup on him because he would have known that something's wrong. So they saw a plaque on his brain. Um, so, but that sort of hovered outside of my reality. I mean, it was there, but it was not there. And I know now, I don't think I knew then, but I know now that um, there are people who have brain scans for whatever reason, usually an injury, I suppose, and plaque is seen on their brain who may never develop symptoms. You know, the yeah. brain is very mysterious and dementia is very mysterious. So anyway, that was kind of hovering there. Um, and then in 1994, 
the actual diagnosis was made and my mother told me and then she told me that he was putting this letter out and telling the world. Um, and I, um, as I, as I write in this book, I was in a very dark period of my life. Um, I was running away from an abusive relationship. I had sold my, my house in Los Angeles at the bottom of the market. I lost pretty much everything. I mean, I had no money. I, um, I moved to New York. I knew nobody in New York and it was kind of like everything I touched went bad and I really was at a place where I thought, I don't know that I want to live anymore. I don't know that I want to be here anymore when this diagnosis wow. was confirmed. And I guess it could have been sort of like the last nail, you know, and made me go, okay, that's it. I really don't want to be here. But it actually had the opposite effect on me. I thought, okay, whatever I'm going through pales in comparison to what my father is facing. And, and I want to be here for this. I want to show up for this. Um, and, and I want to get this right. And the first thing that I thought, which has been my grounding through the 10 years of his illness and beyond, and is really one of the main um, points of, of beyond Alzheimer's, is that I didn't, I didn't believe his soul could be sick. I didn't believe his soul could have Alzheimer's. And I thought if I hang on to that, then I will keep trying to look past and through the disease. And that's what I did for 10 years. I think you bring up in your description a really good point about the preservation of the relationship, of the connection, you know, the separation of the person as patient and the illness, and then the essence mm -hmm. of who that person is. And through the caregiving process, perhaps even becoming more deeply connected. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what happened with me and my father. Um, there's, there's no doubt in my mind, but a lot of that was that I gave up the agendas that I had, I gave up being the daughter who wanted more from her father. All of mm. my father's kids wanted more from him. He was a very elusive man. He was not really an attentive father. And we all loved him and we all wanted more from him. But I thought, you know what, it's basically it's time to grow up. You know, he was the he was the father that he was. So you're going to have to show up here as an adult and be open to whatever, whatever happens, because I didn't know what was going to happen. I don't think anybody really does, even though we know more about dementia now than we did then. I don't, I, you still don't really know how that individual is going to manifest the disease. Um, so it was, yeah, so I, I never, I never went through the denial stage. And, um, I started writing the long goodbye pretty much at the very beginning because I'm a writer and that's always going to be my refuge, you know? Um, but I, and I wrote it in, in journal fashion because I, I wanted to write about it as I was going through it, obviously not daily because it would be 2000 pages long, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, this floating in the deep end is is really in a way kind of a sequel to that book because i i 
I was learning what I was learning as I was going along. But I think with time, the lessons that you learn and the insights that you gain um, take shape and and um, achieve a greater depth and you can make sense of them more. So it took me a lot of years to do that. Now, I, I, we're going to need to take a break in a minute. And when we come back, I'm also really interested in your experience of being the caregiver of somebody who has Alzheimer's and then what you were met with in your life on the other side of that experience, you know, and, and how, how that be that connection and that story plays out from your dad's passing until today. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Patty Davis to learn more about her work and her books. You can find her on Facebook at Books by Patty Davis, on Twitter at Patty underscore Davis. We're talking about floating in the deep end, how caregivers can see beyond Alzheimer's. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Talking with Patty Davis about seeing beyond Alzheimer's guidance for patients and caregivers. Let's return to the conversation. Patty, during the break, I was remarking to you about the, the sense of you coming in, into your own or in home to yourself through this process of caregiving for your father and then the work that you've done subsequently in, in this field and in, in supporting and serving others. And I'm wondering if you could share with us a couple of the tools and strategies that you developed and how you communicate that to the people with whom you work. Well, one of the things early on that I that I decided on that was really important for me going through this was that you can always there's always a different way of looking at things. There's always a different way of looking at that person who is ill. You can simply look at the fact that they're losing cognition, that their memory is failing, and stop there. I mean, I've had people, I, I had people come in sometimes to the support group and start with, you know, they're not there anymore. They're just gone. They're not, that, that person is not mm. there anymore. And, um, you know, I, I never, um, I never want to tell people what they should or shouldn't think or feel, but I make exceptions to that. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever somebody said that, I would go, no, 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 do not say that. Do not say that and try not to think it. Because then that's going to be your experience of the experience. There's a, you know, that gets into the soul not having Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, the soul not being sick. 
um, there is still a human being in there. There's still a human being with emotions, with desires, um, with needs. And if you open yourself to that, if you look at it differently, um, you will learn something different. And, um, you know, I think that that ends up being a life lesson. It, it became a really important lesson with me, with my mother, um, with whom I had a, a very difficult relationship, always very challenging. And I write about this in, in Floating in the Deep End that I I learned by employing that, I learned rather than to look at her with resentment for some of the things that she did, um, I I learned to look at her with sympathy and with compassion because she she really was the architect for the fractures in our family. I mean, my father allowed it to happen and he went along with it, but she really was the architect of that. And so then she ends up later in life losing her soulmate, losing her husband to Alzheimer's without... Um, without a family folded around her. Not that we didn't want to be there, but she didn't know how to reach out to us. And none of us really knew how to be there because we didn't have a foundation for yeah. that. Because we never had been that family. So rather than getting angry at her, and as I said, resentful was some of the things that, that she did, um, I, I, learned to, I learned to look at it differently. I learned to look at her with um, with sympathy, and I think that that's you know that's what takes you out of your own woundedness um, by looking at it, by seeing that the other person is wounded too, and they don't even know it. Yeah, and when your dad passed, yes, was your mom able to not move beyond is not the right way to phrase this, but to see to see the situation from an elevated perspective, from a, a meta view? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think she was so entrenched in, um, you know, who she had always been that um, I, I don't really, I don't really think so. Um yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I was there a lot after after my father died, and um, I, I didn't see any kind of profound change. And I think you know that's what I've always told people about about parents, whether it's whether it's the parent with dementia. Because sometimes people think, okay, when, well, now that my parent has dementia, um, maybe some of the past problems and challenges will fall away and just be love there <laughs> well sorry if it hasn't been there before <laughs> dementia is not going to unveil that right yes or if it's the other parent who isn't ill and if that's like in my situation if that's who it's challenging i mean i'm not saying that sometimes people that people can never change they of course can i'm just saying it's not likely yeah you know so you have to be the one to change and and you have to be the one to look at it uh, from a different perspective. And, you know, the, the business of caretaking is such an intimate, deep journey. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's not where you just you show up for your shift. Right. It, they, right. They're endless shifts. It's just it just is you're 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 in it with that person. 
And uh, without adopting this sort of transformative or observant approach, I can see how it takes one out or can take one down. Yes. And I think, I think to not be a prisoner of that means that you kind of have to work on it every day, emotionally and psychologically. I, I have told people a lot of times it's like emotional weightlifting. You know, we go to the gym yeah. or we do whatever workout <laughs> we do and we train our muscles to do things that maybe sometimes they don't want to do. Well, it's the same thing with our emotions and, and with our psyche. We have to train ourselves to do things that we sometimes resist. Um, you know, the tendency, I think, particularly in the situation of dementia and being a caregiver for someone with dementia, is you think, this is this is my whole life. These are my prison walls, and I can't have any other life. You know, I can't go out with my friends. I can't have any – I can't have fun. I can't laugh, which is ridiculous. You know, why – how is sacrificing all that going to help the the person you're caring for? It's not. And it's certainly not going to help you. So, you know, you need to train those muscles to go, you know, I can still grieve. I can still um, inhabit this situation that I'm in, but also have other aspects of my life. Which brings me to the point of laughter, right? You you, you yes. write about guilt and the balm of laughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we and I think you know that's what's really valuable also about a support group is you're in a room with other people who are going through the same thing. And we laughed a lot in my support group. Listen, people with dementia sometimes do funny things. You're not laughing at them. In fact, once you start laughing, they'll start laughing, so you're actually laughing with them. Yes. But, you know, you do want to be careful about who you talk to about this. You know, if you talk to somebody who's not familiar personally with dementia and you say, oh my God, my loved one did the funniest thing and, and you're laughing about it, they might think that you're a really cold person. So you want to be careful about yes, that. Yes, that, that makes perfect sense. Talk a little bit about caring for someone with Alzheimer's or other dementias when things get out of control, because those of us who have been in this situation understand that sometimes personalities can be flippy. Yeah. I mean, particularly in the earlier stages, which are, I think, the hardest stages, that person knows that they're losing cognition, they're scared, they're more inclined to act out. Um, those are the times when you find someone um, <clears throat> not letting caregivers into the house or wandering around the neighborhood or something like that. And there are times when you have to call someone, when you have to call yeah. adult protective services, even. I can think of a story many years ago. It was an old boyfriend. His 99-year-old mother lived with us, and she wandered outside of the gate of the property at night with curlers in her hair. And she must have been yeah. about five feet tall and maybe maybe 90 pounds. And she was brought back in the middle of the night by the Burbank Police Department. This was in Toluca Lake, wearing the officer's leather coat with the curler still in her hair. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know? It, yeah. And to, in the retelling, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny then. Right. So, yeah. I mean, sometimes you do need outside help. Also, you know, people with dementia can get 
taken advantage of by other people, even even other family members. I yeah. mean, it can get really messy. I mean, there's no question about that. And um, you can call Adult Protective Services anonymously. That is a possibility. Mm. If you don't have your name attached to it, even a family member can do it anonymously. And they will come and they will check on that person. They have to, right? They yeah, have they to have investigate. To. Yes. Yeah. We're nearly out of time, and I want to just move to the place of rebuilding your world. You know, after the loss of this person, you know, Mm -hmm. our loved one, there's sort of the putting back the pieces of one's own life and reclaiming one's own joy or Mm -hmm. personal business. What is that experience like for you and, and the people that you've worked with over the years? Well, I think, first of all, you have to really um, surrender to your grief. Mm. Um, Hopefully, you've been doing that all along, because I think that's really important. But, you know, even, I mean, I had 10 years of moving through my grief with my father, and and still, when he died, there were waves of it that drove me to my knees. And I, I believe very strongly that you have to surrender to that. Um, I've always said to people that, you know, we all have a tendency to want to push grief away because it hurts. But um, we think if we send it out to the South 40, it will disintegrate. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. Grief is not biodegradable. It will wait for you and it will come find you. And if it has to come find you, it's going to bring your life to a standstill until you go through it. So particularly at the end, you have to let yourself go through that. And that is part of the rebuilding and then you can step back and say, okay, what did I, what are the memories that remain? What did I learn from this? How did I grow from this? You know, as you describe this, I'm thinking, you know, the, the book is clearly about, you know, seeing beyond the Alzheimer's, but it's also about one's own personal journey, you know, as the caregiver, mm-hmm. the evolution of of each one of us when we go through this process, because we will, each one of us yeah. is going to go through this um, job description at some point in our life. It may not be yeah. with Alzheimer's, but we will all be there. And it's a great uh, humanizing experience, I think. Well, you know, I, I think here's the thing. When you go through this, you you are never going to be the same person coming out the other end. How you will be different is a matter of choice. You are either going to be softer, more compassionate, more understanding, um, have a wider view of things, or you're going to be more closed off, more brittle, angrier, colder. It's a matter of choice. And I think it it depends on the choices that you make pretty much every day in in the experience. Patty Davis, thanks for joining us on the show. We've been talking about your newest book, Floating in the Deep End, How Caregivers Can See Beyond Alzheimer's. To find out more and connect with Patty Davis, please do so on Facebook at Books by Patty Davis and on Twitter at Patty underscore Davis. Patty, thanks for joining me on the show. This is uh, such a... Uh, a warm, heartfelt conversation. And I, it was very different than I thought it would be because I was really focusing on, you know, the clinical part of it, the Alzheimer's oh. part of it. And this is really the, the software system, you know, yeah, the, the power behind yeah. it. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Software yeah. system. I might steal that. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Andrew Butson and Patty Davis, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.